This week, an ankle brace that improves walking. What we kind of wanted to try to do is a leapfrog evolution, if you like, in making the structure of the body more efficient. And making quantum physics work on big things. Well, not huge, but atom-sized. So it is a true uh, experimental challenge to have atoms uh, behave truly in a quantum way. Plus getting social scientists more involved with climate change. This is The Nature Podcast for April 2nd, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Our species is really good at walking. We spent millions of years evolving a well-tuned system of bones and muscles for putting one foot in front of the other. And we get loads of practice at it. The average person takes more than 5,000 steps a day. So what on earth made Stephen Collins think he could do better? He designed a mechanical exoskeleton to make walking even more efficient. Jeff Marsh gave him a call. Of all the questions that scientists can you know, put their minds to, um, what made you go for how can I improve walking? <laughs> well, I guess I, I became interested in the problem as a, as a young student working on walking robots, which tend to be uh, 10 to 100 times less efficient than humans. And uh, actually, we, we discovered some ways of using um, the natural dynamics of legs to make robots more efficient. And uh, so as I moved on in my research, I wanted to see if we could take some of these ideas and apply them to devices that help people with disabilities. So this is a study on helping healthy people, uh, but we think that the techniques we discover will have use to assistive devices. And you mentioned there that when you were working on robotics, you know, they were hundreds of times less efficient. That's because humans are really, really good at walking. Yes, people are, are excellent walkers. Um, we've developed uh, neural and muscular and skeletal structures over the course of millions of years that make us uh, very efficient at walking. Did that not worry you? Did that not kind of cross your mind that maybe we're as good at walking as we ever can be? Oh, sure. And I think uh, some people uh, have argued that, actually, that any change you make to the body uh, would decrease performance. But that's part of what drew us to the problem, actually. So it's, it's only been in the last couple of years that any machine has reduced the energy cost of walking. And the first devices to do so were powered exoskeletons. And they partly replace the energy used by your muscles with an external artificial source. But we wanted to see, can you reduce energy costs with an unpowered device? And the thing that makes that uh, more difficult and interesting is that it's sort of like changing the structure of the body to make it more efficient. Instead of replacing uh, metabolic energy with some synthetic source, you'd have to make the whole system more efficient. In theory, uh, those kinds of structural changes could have been discovered through evolution. And so we're, we're, what we kind of wanted to try to do is uh, leapfrog evolution, if you like, in, in making the structure of the body more efficient. Where is the wastage in, in human walking? What components of the process can you improve upon? Right. Well, human muscles are remarkable. But one way that they waste energy is that whenever they produce force, they consume metabolic energy. That's the biochemical energy inside your body. And in theory, producing a force requires uh, no energy expenditure at all. If you set a coffee cup on the table, it produces a force against the table due to gravity without burning up any energy. Uh, so we 
tried to perform a piece of this function with a mechanical clutch. So tell me about the, the structure that you've, that you've created. This is something that you wear on your leg, right? Right. This is a, it's a lightweight ankle exoskeleton, and it has a clutch and a spring. And the clutch engages the spring when the foot is on the ground and releases it when your foot is in the air. And the clutch is in parallel with your calf muscles, and the spring is in parallel with your Achilles tendon. And their function is really similar when the foot's on the ground. But unlike the muscles, the clutch does this passively. It doesn't use any energy. So basically, you've built this, this synthetic system that kind of performs the functions usually carried out by the Achilles and, and the calf muscle. You, you tested this exoskeleton on healthy volunteers, right? How did you measure their energy consumption? Like, how did you prove that this increased efficiency? Well, we use a process called indirect respirometry, where we measure the volume of uh, air that the person breathes in and breathes out. And we measure the concentration of oxygen and carbon dioxide in that air. So we can see how much oxygen your body has absorbed and how much carbon dioxide uh, you've produced. And based on some uh, equations, you can estimate the amount of metabolic energy used inside the body. And so did you put a number on this? Like how much easier did you make walking for these volunteers? Yes, walking with the exoskeletons is 7% easier than walking without the exoskeletons. So that's pretty close to the effect of removing a four kilogram backpack. Having worn these exoskeletons a lot myself, I can tell you uh, when you take them off, your legs just feel really heavy and, and weak. Are there specific people um, that could really benefit from this extra 7% energy boost? Well, we're particularly interested in, in trying to develop technologies to help people who have disabilities that affect the lower limbs, like people who've had a stroke or amputation, whose energy cost tends to be elevated by 20 to 50% higher than um, their non-disabled counterparts. Do you think we're all going to be going for mechanically enhanced strolls in the future? I, I do. I think it's just a matter of time. Um, I think that these kinds of devices may become as commonplace as reading glasses. That was Stephen Collins from Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania. You can see Stephen's device in action at the Nature News site. And if you want to listen to the show and check out the pics at the same time, there's an app for that, the Acast app. Go to acast.com forward slash nature to listen to the show and find links to the research and related images and video. Of course, we're still available as usual via iTunes or your preferred podcasting software. Coming up in the news chat, Lizzie Gibney gives us the lowdown on what the looming UK election means for science here and abroad. But first, where does quantum end and classical begin? Usually, if physicists want something to be quantum, it should be tiny. They often use photons, which have no mass at all. But some groups are interested in trying to make bigger things behave in a quantum way. When they say this, they're still only talking about atoms. But that's still hard, because the bigger things get, the harder it is to stop them from interacting with their environment. Mark Cheneau and his team have been giving it a try. They're based at the Institut d'Optique, just south of Paris, and they've rerun a famous quantum experiment first done with photons almost three decades ago. But this time, they've used helium atoms. The original experiment involved sending two photons towards a plate of glass and watching where they ended up. They can pass through the plate or reflect off it, ending up on either side. What you see if you do this study is that both photons always end up on the same side of the plate. 
There's no classical explanation for this. It's a quantum phenomenon that has to do with the possibilities of them ending up in various configurations and how some of those possibilities cancel each other out. Don't worry about this too much. Just remember that if things behave quantumly, they end up both on the same side. So what will helium atoms do under these conditions? I asked Mark to explain, but first he told me why they wanted to use helium. I would say the very first uh, answer for us is, uh, is uh, because it's a challenge. In order to have atoms behave in a quantum way, we have to keep them uh, extremely well isolated from the environment. And this is actually the, the, the same is true actually for photons. But it's much easier to do with photons because photons uh, do not interact so much with their environment. And atoms interact much more. And one of the reasons is, is because they are uh, bigger objects. And the other reason is because they are massive objects. And because they have a mass, uh, they feel gravity and so on. So it is a true uh, experimental challenge to have atoms uh, behave truly in a quantum way. But because atoms uh, have uh, many more ways to interact with their environment than photons, they could also be much more useful, for instance, to compute information in a much more uh, efficient way. So what experiment did you attempt to rerun then with your atoms as opposed to with people before have used photons for this same experiment? Yeah, so the experiment that we have uh, reproduced in our lab uh, is an experiment that was originally performed by uh, Hong, Wu and Mandel in 1987. And this is uh, actually a very simple experiment that consists in sending two photons on a glass plate. The glass plate is made such that a photon has a 50-50 chance of uh, getting through the plate or being reflected. So now you send two photons at the same time on both sides of the plate and you look on the outside which is the path they followed. Because the photons are quantum particles, you have a very strange phenomenon that happens. The two photons will always appear on the same side. This concept has no classical equivalent. And so classically, you cannot explain the, the result of this experiment. And so what we have done is we have repeated this, uh, this experiment now with atoms. And we have observed, as predicted by quantum mechanics, that indeed the two atoms exit always on the same side. So your classical, if you like, your classical atoms are behaving quantumly? Yes, well, according to quantum mechanics, atoms should behave uh, in the same way as, as photons. But to see that in the, in the lab, uh, it's, it's a different story. Some physicists believe there to be a boundary between the quantum world and the classical world. I mean, the fact that you've now got these atoms to behave in a quantum way, does that speak to this, this boundary at all, this idea of the two theories meeting somewhere? Yes, so you are right indeed. There is always a, 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 an issue with, with quantum mechanics is that the world we are used to um, is, is not quantum. So how to explain that small objects could behave in a quantum way, whereas uh, nothing looks quantum in, in our uh, daily world. Yeah? And so some people have proposed that uh, this has to do with the mass of the objects that you are attempting to describe. So now, of course, uh, seeing a quantum effect with atoms tells you something about these theories. So they at least tell you that 
um, this transition from the quantum to the classical uh, does not happen at the scale of a single atom. But to be honest, this was not so much of a surprise for us. I think most of my colleagues and, and, and myself, we do expect that this happens on, a, on another scale, so for heavier objects. But we still don't know where. And actually, we still don't know if it's even true that the quantumness simply disappears with the size of the objects. Yeah, because one other theory is that there is no boundary, that basically everything is quantum. Yes, exactly. Everything is quantum, yeah, and everything remains quantum at any scale. It's just that as the size of the object gets larger and larger, it interacts uh, with its environment much more. And so the quantumness, if you wish, uh, gets diluted in the environment. And how are you going to work it out? Because presumably you could just try your experiment now with heavier atoms or, I don't know, groups of atoms. What, what's, uh, what's next now that you've managed it with helium? Yeah, so uh, you're right. That's a direction that uh, we may pursue and that colleagues are indeed pursuing. There are many people uh, around the world that are actually trying to perform this kind of experiments with uh, microscopic objects that are made now of, of millions or billions of atoms. When you started off working in this in this field, did you think that you'd end up doing experiments that would address, you know, the biggest controversy in all of physics? Not really. <laughs> Not really. But, you know, as a physicist, we all have these kind of uh, questions in mind. If you don't try, you never figure out. We should just have a look and see what's going on. That was physicist Mark Cheneau. The paper is at nature.com slash nature, where you'll also find a News & Views article about the study. Time now for the research highlights with Noah Baker. I love pandas, and I would be heartbroken if they went extinct. But it turns out that focusing conservation money on charismatic species like pandas might not be the best bet. New research from New Zealand modelled the effects of spending one million US dollars in different ways. Use all the money to protect 10 iconic species and you only stop one species from going extinct on average. Spread the cash out over a few extra species and three species are spared. Iconic species are still great for getting people to donate to conservation, but spreading the wealth is the best idea. The full story is in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. From endangered species to extinct species, Stuck in the wall of a cave in Italy is a complete skeleton of an ancient human relative. It was discovered 20 years ago, but until recently the bones could only be studied while embedded, making it difficult to identify the species. But researchers were recently permitted to remove a piece of shoulder bone, and its DNA revealed that it's a Neanderthal. What's more, it could be up to 190,000 years old, the oldest Neanderthal specimen to have its DNA tested. For more details, see the Journal of Human Evolution. Human action is causing climate change. So why aren't more social scientists who study human behaviour doing more to research climate? Most importantly, couldn't they help figure out what to do about it? Since the late 1980s, the Authority on Climate has been the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. So far, the IPCC has released five assessment reports to keep the world's governments up to date with climate science. The latest report was finished last year. But the IPCC doesn't really focus on social science. Political scientist David Victor of the University of California, San Diego, believes that it's vital that the IPCC includes more. But who exactly worked on the last report? Here's David Victor. 
Well, in the last assessment, several hundred scientists, uh, mainly from the natural sciences, but also a, a few social scientists, um, geographers, ecologists, contribute as volunteers. Almost all of them are volunteers, and they contribute to writing these reports over a three or four or five year time cycle. One group really focuses on the physical science. A second group really focuses on the impacts, and especially impacts on systems that affect humans directly. And then the third group, working group three, which is where I've been heavily involved, focuses on the strategies for mitigating emissions, for controlling emissions. That seems like quite a comprehensive structure. Would you say there are some shortcomings, though, with the way it's currently set up? Uh, the IPCC is organized around consensus. And a consensus organization is very good at telling you things around which you have a very high level of certainty. And it's not so good at telling you things where you're not quite sure, where uncertainty is high, where there's a lot of controversy around what's actually happening. And unfortunately, most of the really important issues for, for climate science and climate policy today are in that latter category. They're, they're areas where we're not quite sure what the best thing to do is. So for example, what's the best way to design a climate change policy, a mitigation policy? There are lots of different points of view around that. And the second big problem that it has is this, this IPCC has been very good at involving uh, natural scientists especially, and some economists, but the broader social sciences, anthropology, political science, which is my discipline, sociology, uh, other uh, disciplines that study how humans and societies behave, we basically haven't been all that involved in the process. And that's a big problem because as we shift in climate policy from worrying about the question of whether climate change is really happening to the question of how do you design policies, what are the impacts of, of different policies on different groups in society. Those are the kinds of issues that, that the social sciences can tell us a lot about, but only if we find a way of actually engaging them in a serious way in the IPCC process. It seems bizarre to me that the social sciences haven't been included further to this point. Yeah, it's, it's um, disturbing that we've spent now more than 20 years working on the climate problem and assessing the climate problem. We haven't really made a lot of progress in engaging the full range of scientific disciplines here. Why haven't the social sciences been included further in the IPCC to date? There's no leading political science department anywhere in the country where there's a tenured faculty member who spends the majority of their time on climate change. And that's because there are very strong incentives in political science to work using particular methods, to work on larger questions of international relations or comparative politics or voting behavior and things like that, and not to specialize on climate. Um, and the second problem uh, is that the social sciences themselves are, tend to be less well-organized uh, paradigmatically, meaning we don't agree as much on, on what the right sources of knowledge are, what the kind of basic theorems are that explain how the world, is wor how the world works. Now, the piece that's coming out of Nature this week says that these are going to be very big problems to solve and difficult problems to solve, but there are some ways to solve them. So, for example, we can get the major social science uh, scientific bodies involved in the IPCC from an early stage so that the scoping that's done for each IPCC report is organized around questions that the social sciences themselves are better able to address. To me, the biggest problem with the IPCC seems to not necessarily be its content, but the fact that its content often gets pretty much ignored by policymakers. Do you think the social sciences could do anything to combat this? I think more involvement of the social sciences could help make the IPCC's work more directly relevant to policymakers. Right now, when we do these big assessments, we end up with broad conclusions, such as uh, it would cost X globally to cut emissions, or 
that um, if we were to make these cuts in emissions, uh, it would it would stop global warming within a decade or two deca decades or three decades. And these are very big, broad insights about how the world works. And I, I think they help guide policymakers generally, but they don't help policymakers very much on the questions that they're actually struggling with today, such as how should we design an international agreement so that it's more effective? Should we use binding agree agreements or should we focus on non-binding agreements? Those are the issues that real policymakers today are grappling with, and, and the IPCC doesn't actually tell them very much about that, to the point where it's in fact very difficult to mention individual countries or even groups of countries inside IPCC reports because you're worried that the governments in those countries are going to be upset by the findings that put a spotlight on them. That was David Victor who has a comment piece in this week's Nature magazine. Find it at nature.com forward slash news. More news now and Lizzie Gibney joins me. Now we spend a fair bit of time in the news chat talking about politics, mostly the US it has to be said and half of our audience are based there. But there's a big political event coming up in the UK isn't there on the 7th of May. Absolutely, the UK general election 2015. So this is kind of an interesting election for us folks over here in the UK because rather than just having a two-party race, which it's been for a very long time, um, we've got a whole number of much smaller parties, traditionally thought of as single-issue parties, who are actually going to play a really important role. Now, science isn't really for any of these parties, it has to be said, in this election, much of a kind of platform issue, is it? Even for the big two, for Labour and the, the Conservatives. Absolutely not. So at the last election, people were very worried about cuts. I mean, it was 2010, it was just prime austerity time. Um, and there was a big campaign to try and make sure that science wasn't cut and, and to demonstrate how important it was for the economy, etc. This time around, it's all been a little bit quiet on the science front. There's been a, a, bit, of, a bit of concern among the science community about that, but maybe we'll see that ramp up a little bit ahead of the election. But these, uh, the big parties, but also the small parties, um, they're not that likely to campaign on scientific issues as well, because they all have their one big issue that they care about. So, for instance, um, the UK Independence Party, as you'd imagine, is all about independence and um, taking Britain out of the European Union. And lots of the parties have those um, particular campaigns that they have. So science is kind of trying to elbow its way a little bit into this election at the moment. And you, in the article this week that you've written alongside of, um, other colleagues at Nature, you've looked at actually some of these more minority single issue parties. You just mentioned UKIP, the UK Independence Party. And it doesn't seem on the face of it like they you know, have much to say about science. But I mean, have they have they made any comments about it in the past? Over the years, they've had some fairly um, bonkers ideas, really, um, because they've had, they have some quite eccentric members and um, and they haven't really aligned all their policies on things like science, which are outside of their core. They're climate change sceptics for a start. Um, and there was a great uh, slip up by someone saying that, um, what will we do when the renewable energy runs out? Which <laughs> she later said was, um, she meant when the subsidies run out. But, um, but Things like that happen quite often with UKIP. So, so people don't really think of them as being particularly scientifically literate. Um, but this time around, they've got one parliamentary candidate um, called Julia Reid, who has a PhD in pharmacology and has previously worked as, a, as an academic researcher. Um, so she's kind of trying to put a bit more of a rational face on their, on their science policies. But UKIP still fundamentally, obviously, as I said, climate sceptics. And they also are, want much stricter rules on immigration to the UK. And that's a real concern because we want people with, with lots of skills like scientists to be able to come in. And it's also really just about the rhetoric. If UKIP do very well over here, 
a lot of the scientists I spoke to just felt that that would kind of give the broadcast a message across the world that people are not welcome to come to the UK. And that would be really damaging for, for a lot of science here. Now, other little minority parties, uh, one is the Greens. So obviously they are very good on, on climate change. That's one of their main, main policies and pushes. But sometimes in the past, people have thought of them as being a little bit anti-science in the way that they are, for instance, um, against animal testing. They recognise that while animal experiments can be used in in medicine, they say that doesn't justify suffering for the animals. And of course, a lot of of medical scientists would would disagree with that. And so they're kind of fighting a bit of a battle here to show that that their policies are all based in evidence and and they're trying to portray themselves as not being as anti-science as people might otherwise think. Now, finally, the third party you've covered in the article is the Scottish National Party. Yes. So that's interesting because very recently we had a referendum in Scotland for independence. And whilst uh, they didn't win that, Scotland is staying part of the UK, there was a big surge afterwards in support for the for the nationalists. And so now it looks like they might sweep and take a lot of seats in Scotland. And so rather than just having a handful of seats in, in the overall UK parliament, they're going to have maybe 40, maybe 50, which is quite a chunk. Um, and so might give them some influence, some sway after the election. Uh, they're generally quite left-leaning, so the idea is they would probably work with the Labour Party rather than the Conservatives and maybe help them to actually get into power in some way. And they've got quite a good record, really, the Scottish Government on science. People seem to think they're quite evidence-based, they listen to their scientists, they've put in some decent amounts of money and come up with some quite innovative schemes, like ways of getting universities to collaborate. And I mean, Scotland's got a really strong science base. It's one of those places they always say it's got great bang for its buck and it produces an awful lot uh, for the amount that's put in. They've also got a policy of creating 100% of Scotland's electricity from renewables by 2020. But of course, they still want independence for Scotland. And as we wrote about back when the referendum happened, uh, there are an awful lot of scientists who think that would be a very bad idea for research in both Scotland and the rest of the UK. Still, UKIP will be pleased to hear that the renewables in Scotland are not going to run out any time soon. All right. Well, while the UK cultivates a few minor celebrities in the form of Ed Miliband, David Cameron, the leaders of the two major parties, uh, we're hopping over the pond to the true effect of a true celebrity here. And we're talking about Angelina Jolie. Absolutely. So people have called this the Angelina Jolie effect. And that's um, a documented surge in demand for genetic testing. So she found out a couple of years ago that she carries a genetic mutation that's known to strongly increase the risk of ovarian cancer and breast cancer. And she had a mastectomy back then and she just come out, um, I think, last week and wrote an article in the New York Times about also having her ovaries surgically removed. And so um, this article is really a bit of a cautionary tale about how hard it still is to interpret this genetic information that we have. So in the case of Angelina Jolie, the actual mutation that they found, and that was on the um, BRCA1 gene, does increase the risk. But that's not necessarily the case for every single mutation that's on that BRCA gene. Um, And so for some, we just don't have enough data to say whether these uh, mutations are actually going to predispose someone to cancer or not. And so geneticists are trying to build up databases so that they can understand what the effects are more. Um, And as they do that, they actually find that that some of them that previously had unknown effect actually aren't harmful. It's been brave of her to speak out about the conditions that she was worried she might have and the risks that she might have of developing these cancers. Um, And I suppose it's a good thing, isn't it, for health awareness that she's come out and said this, this sort of thing, notwithstanding the issues that remain? 
I think so. And people, you know, the experts agree that in her particular case, she did the right thing. And her article is very clear about the reasons that she did it, because it was not just because she had this mutation, but also she has family history. It was her her mother, her aunt, her grandmother, who all died from from these cancers. Um, and so I think, you know, it is raising awareness. And as long as the information that's in there is really accurate and is sending people in the right direction and doesn't make people jump to conclusions, then, then it's positive. But there were at least four cases in which women had their breasts or ovaries removed after finding out that they had one of these variants that had not been definitively linked to increased disease risk. So people really need to make sure that they're getting a lot of help um, from really qualified people when they're interpreting their results. Thanks for that, Lizzie. And you can read both those stories and more, of course, at nature.com news. And that's it from us. Next week, we hear about the sun's character from a poet. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.